This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. Is crypto overhyped? Yes. You think so? That's interesting. Why do you think so? In a certain way, I think it's overhyped because people don't see like the real value behind it. They see like a speculative value. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Robert, a very well welcome to the Swiss Pro Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Silvan. It's a great pleasure for me to be on your show. You're the co-founder and CEO of Liquity, a decentralized protocol to enable interest-free borrowing on the blockchain. A super hot and very interesting topic. Before we talk about that, I want to start with your personal background. You actually began studying microengineering, but then switched to law. What motivated this decision and did you ever regret it? Um, so I always had a keen interest uh, in everything uh, related to technology, mainly computer science, as it turned out. I used to do like hobby projects in my youth years. Then I, like, due to some reasons, I ended up studying microengineering, which turned out to be too practical for me. Like, <laughs> it turned out to be not just related to chip design or computers, which I was interested in, but it mm -hmm. was also more like... Do some like work on with wood or with like metal and design like I don't know like devices, and that that was too practical for me. And I wasn't like more the theory the theorist guy who who liked like the math behind the physics and everything related to like the foundations. Mm -hmm. And so I, I it just turned out that that was not the right decision for me. And yeah, and and so I really also started to look into alternatives. And I knew from my like high school years that I also very much liked uh, law and economics. That was like my second uh, major um, like topic there mm -hmm. in school. And uh, yeah, somehow I, I just took this like 180 degree turn. It was like kind of uh, surprising to many people. But yeah, I somehow wanted to do something completely different because I kind of get fed up with the studies there. And that's how I ended up like studying law. And, you know, I like microengineering that was in, in Lausanne, mm -hmm. in French, was also like kind of an extra difficulty. So I knew I didn't want to study law in French. That's why I went back to like the Swiss German part of Switzerland and to Zurich. Got it. And why not study computer science? Because that's something that you were particularly interested in. Why was that not the right option for you back then? <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting question. My father used to work as a software engineer and I somehow found it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I knew it. It was... <laughs> I mean, I was interested, but I, yeah, it wasn't obvious for me to do it because maybe I just wanted to do something different. And yeah, but then I somehow like after many turnarounds and uh, I found back to this core discipline. So, it's, so it, it was a detour, but probably a detour that is also helping you in today's business world with the law and also economics background, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that, that's also very helpful, like all the 
game theory and economics and and the legal like just for all like setting up the the admin structure i mean being a lawyer helps and you even worked as a lawyer for several years before you then became a blockchain researcher so i wonder when did you first you know where when did your first interest come up about the blockchain how did you get into that topic so that was i mean i read about the white paper i think in 2013 or I just read the white paper, so to say. And yeah, I was fascinated, but it didn't really click back then. I mean, it was like a very obscure thing. Mm -hmm. I put it aside. And I think three or four years later, I think in 2016, I just read in the Handelszeitung, in one of the business journals here in Switzerland, that uh, a guy called Vitalik Buterin came to Zug, which is my hometown, and started building an internet or like a world computer based on blockchain technology. And, And that's when it really clicked because it was much more versatile than just Bitcoin, which is a currency and Ethereum is like much more than that. So I got like sucked into this whole world. I started like doing my own research. I've, I've wrote blog, blog posts a few like and forum posts. And then at some point I also um, started going to meetups in Zurich and uh, got more and more involved in the space. And what role did it play that, you know, it also got way more close to you. So this was happening in your hometown. Yeah. What was that sort of triggering the feeling, hey, this is so close. These people probably around the same age as I am, they do it so I can also do it. That's super interesting stuff. Or what effect did that have that it was so close to you? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, that like also made it even more appealing to me. I mean, it's not just like appealing from a technical point of view, but also like proximity wise. It's yeah. And then you still have then to to take a, a leap of faith, certainly to then also become an entrepreneur yourself. Do you have any role models or any people that inspired you to take down the entrepreneurial path? Yeah, so um, I mean, I met Cedric at when working at Definity. That was like where, where I ended up with after like following those um, meetups and and stuff. I can maybe tell a bit more about that. But mm-hmm. when I met him, I just saw that he it was like. I'm not sure, like his seventh or eighth company that he was already involved with, and uh, and he started a few himself, but he was also an investor in some others, and just like the fact that you can like do it like even in series like was kind of something that like was inspiring, and uh, yeah, and also like just the fact that I mean looking at like what Definity was back then, I mean a few people like not really well organized, I mean just like a very small startup, um, it just made me think that, oh, yeah, I mean, this is something everybody has to start like small and, and like with limited resources. So it's it's possible to start something that can grow into something much bigger. And what motivated you to join Definity in the first place? Maybe you can also share a bit how you met Cedric at these meetups and then got more and more interested in joining his company, basically. So so that was like an interesting story. I didn't meet him here in Switzerland, or I mean, I met him then, but it was like a, a different story. So I put out a blog post and some people motivated me to send it to a, a few blockchain startups. One of them was Definity, and I immediately got a reaction from Timo Hanke, who was like, I think, chief scientist or CTO um, back then. And uh, he basically wanted to talk. And then we had a couple of conversations with, with like various people there and they invited me to um, their hacker house, which was based in uh, Palo Alto in the Silicon Valley. I mean, that was huge. I was back then working as a clerk at uh, like uh, the uh, civil engineering office of Zurich, like the Zurich uh, municipal uh, management, basically. So that was like a huge leap. And then 
I got a job there, like a small role. I mean, the job was like just a part-time um, role as a community manager. And I also had a, a chance to work on some of the technical stuff, which is cool, even the white paper. But yeah, back then... It was through Definity that I met Cedric because he was like the legal co-founder. And I think maybe he was still like an, an official role in the council of the foundation. But yes, and that's how like they basically recommended to meet him. And yeah, that was... That's crazy. All ended up. Yeah. <laughs> but looking back, you were working, you know, you had your day job basically. Yeah. And then to go to the US and, you know, just to see what's happening there to say, hey, I want to have a look at that. Maybe I become part of it. That needs some guts to to pull that off and to also sort of leave your safe haven here, your safe harbor. Yeah. So I mean, it was definitely a, like an interesting path. And but the cool thing was that I could take it gradually because I had like and also my my uh, former boss at uh, like the legal department of the civil engineering office was very supportive so he he also liked blockchain cool. because he had a technical background himself like oh, that, two that backgrounds law and technical yeah. so that was also helpful um from that perspective so i could like still work there for another like six months until i think it was the first time that uh dominic williams and ortia came to switzerland from Definity, and they basically then convinced me to join full-time and that's when i left my day job wow that's <laughs> that's a really cool decision and then what actually happened afterwards? And you worked at Definity full time. What was your role then? Because I, I guess you didn't do uh, the community management anymore as a sole focus. Yeah, so I really worked kind of assisting at the beginning. Like I, I was a researcher and I, my main focus was on consensus algorithms. They are like at the heart of a blockchain. I mean, they basically like they encompass the rules, how like who can like propose which transaction, how can you order them and stuff like that. And I had a chance to work on that and uh, for Timo, but then later on, um, Definity hired like a, a top-notch team of cryptographers from IBM Research. Basically, they, they used to work there. So I, I mean, and then we also started building out like the Zurich office, like a physical office. Before that, it was just my working from home. But then, yeah, I mean, the, the company grew very quickly and then yeah, I had a chance to work with like WordPress cryptographers. Um, my boss was Jan Kamenisch, by the way, who is like a Swiss cryptographer, like very well known worldwide. And yeah, that's how it all. Um, <laughs> it sort of yeah. was the natural flow, yeah. so to speak. I also wonder, these are very technical, you know, topics that you were working on. And based on your education, you basically, I mean, with the law education, you don't get that technical background. How do you teach that to yourself? Where do you learn all of that stuff? So I, I really love like reading academic papers in some areas, like in computer science, not everything, but I really got fascinated by like consensus game theory and yeah, everything related to distributed computing. I mean, cryptography was like a different beast because that's very math heavy, mm -hmm. but all the like distributed computing stuff is more logic, like more base logic than like complex math. And that like kind of made it easier for me to learn the basics and then also not just learn, but but like contribute to it, like to the state of the art, which was really cool. Amazing. So it really was that personal motivation that actually, you know, brought you there. Yeah, it was like, it all started with just like spending hundreds of hours of free time before even starting with Definity. I mean, I already had the chance to, yeah, read through like a lot of 
technical stuff before yeah starting this role but then by by reading it you still cannot really apply all of the things yet you also need some practice right to then also apply the things um, how do you get that yeah so that's maybe a bit uh, a different story because um you know what i did mainly was theoretical work like mm -hmm working out a concept which can then be implemented by other people. So it Got wasn't it. like I wasn't coding myself, really. Yeah. I mean, just maybe some very simple stuff, but like it was more coming up with the foundations and, and reviewing them and writing them down and, and thinking about attack vectors and stuff like that. So really also setting the right strategy, so to speak. I mean, technically speaking, yeah. not right. like of a company yeah. strategy. Yeah. And then at one point in time, um, I think Cedric also left Definity and you then eventually also did the same later down the road to start your own company. Why did you decide to leave Definity? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, the team grew very fast. And then we were like maybe between 30 and 40 people just in the Zurich office and worldwide. It was over 100. Wow. And I mean, given that we hired so many like WordPress people like in many different areas, They all came from like the best positions, like you can imagine Google, Microsoft, Apple, like like all the like the big tech firms. I mean, they like were the places where Definity hired, and I was also a bit involved in the hiring process. But then over time, I think my like knowledge or like what I could contribute there wasn't maybe as targeted any longer as it was at the beginning when when it was really a small startup with just a bunch of people who have like were like still not so well organized and and then like it was like a different thing because then over time definity turned into like a much more corporate organization mm -hmm. and i think that was the right time for me to also focus like even within definity i like changed a bit like my focus i then started looking into applications for on top of blockchains and that's how i got into the whole defi space i mean like lending applications, stable coins. I can talk a bit more about that later maybe. But yeah, that's all then. And that became clear to me that this is also a very interesting part. It's not just the infrastructure, which is interesting, but also like what can you build with that infrastructure? And yeah, and, and then yeah, just having the time to focus on those applications. Yeah, I got my own ideas how I would do things better or more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's how liquidity, the idea came about. <laughs> and the way that we just got to know you, you know, you also always need this new learning experience. So now you understood the infrastructure part and now you just saw this new thing, the applications part. So I guess it's also something that you just wanted to learn more about. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, you cannot do everything at the same time. So you have to, right. at least I have to focus on something and I can go re really deep. But yeah, and then I changed the gears and... Yeah, it, it also turned out to be very interesting, a bit more economic, a bit more legally involved, like game theory was maybe more important there than it was like in the infrastructure layer. So yeah, then it all clicked. And you mentioned the rapid growth that Definity went through. And if you look at the companies in the early days and then also the later days, the, the fast growing days, it's quite a different setup for you also to work there, right? Did you also realize to a certain degree that you prefer to work with smaller teams and having this less corporate style? I think so. So yeah, I really liked also like in my legal career, I had, a, I mean, I worked at different, uh, for different courts and also for different like organizations. And I somehow liked the start or the like the feeling to be like in a small team where we can really have an impact. It's not so bureaucratic, so you can 
still do things really relatively easily without having to go through many um, uh, stages. So yeah, I fully understand that. <laughs> so then in 2019, you actually founded Liquidity together with Rick, your co-founder. So first of all, where did you actually meet Rick? I didn't meet him back then, like in person. It was much later when I met him first. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, I mean, I had this bug to like create a prototype myself mm -hmm. for Liquidity, but I knew that I, I wouldn't get too far, but just to get started on it. And I started like learning Solidity, which is the programming language we use on Ethereum. And, and then of course, by learning it, I had to Google and, and learn like through many resources online. And that's how I stumbled upon Rick's blog, which was a technical blog. Yeah. And I saw that he was really keen on testing and security and making sure that even the smallest piece of code works exactly the way it should. And I, I thought this is really the right mindset you need to have for those financial applications that will manage maybe millions or billions of funds. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and by chance, I saw, I'm looking for a job. Do you have an interesting project? Feel free to reach out to me. And that was a oh, perfect. Really perfect match. And what happened then? So you sent him an email or what did he do? Yeah, exactly. I sent him an email and then I also sent my like small prototype code. Mm -hmm. And that was cool because it made it easier for him to see that like, it was for real. It was not just like right. some idea, but already something written down. And he really liked the idea. And yeah, then... It was perfect because he was he, he was like also available like really right away so the next week so it was i think on, on <laughs> thursday or so when we first started to chat and then on monday he officially started that sounds like in a movie okay you yeah. start on monday yeah <laughs> <laughs> but then i also wonder you know you haven't met each other in real life you started working together in such a short time how do you actually check if if it's a good fit to not run into problems later is it just like hey, let's go for it, let's test it. We'll, we'll find out that way the fastest and easiest. Or did you do any due diligence checks to see, hey, is this person legit? Do we actually work well together to not blow up the company eventually? Um, so I didn't do that much diligence. I had a small detour before that. I want, first wanted to outsource the whole work to an Indian company. It was like, um, and then I also had a, quick chat or interview with another candidate. Um, but just based on the response I got from Rick and comparing it to the other conversations I had, I just saw, oh, this guy is like genuinely interested. And nice. the way he thought about it, like it was like a, the feedback I got from him just like after um, maybe two or three email conversations was kind of uh, assurance that he, he really means it and wants to be involved. Amazing. Did you also have any you know, security precautions uh, put in place to just for the worst case, if it wouldn't work out together as co-founders, that you could still continue with the company to not lose any shares or anything of that sort? Um, so officially, we didn't even start a company back then. So okay. that was, I mean, that started in November yeah. and the company was legally set up in April, then in 2020. Okay. And in between, it was just basically me basically financing the whole um, okay. development from my own funds. Um, so it was, I took the, the entire risk, but I also had the outlook. I mean, Cedric was not just a friend, but also like a prospective investor back then. Right. And yeah, knowing that was quite assuring as well. So that 
the idea was that once we get to the stage that we can set up a company and make it real that uh, he would participate as a pre-seed investor. Amazing. And what did he need to, to have in place in order to found and legally start the company? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, we could have started it earlier, but I wanted, it was maybe just my personal commitment. I wanted to have something where I was kind of convinced that we can pull it off. And we had a few math problems to solve before I was uh, kind of convinced that, yeah, this, this idea can be practically implemented because it's mm -hmm. not just about having an idea, you have to practically realize it. And then once that became clear, maybe in February, yeah, then I, we started to um, set up like the, the legal and admin part. And that wasn't easy either. So, and then COVID hit and yeah, this, just finding a bank account is very difficult for a startup in this. Absolutely. Field. How did you solve that? Did you find a good banking partner? <laughs> so um, there are a few banks that are specialized or really in yeah. like this niche uh, because normal banks, like the big ones, they no wouldn't chance. like no yeah. chance. And even when talking to those specialized banks, I was first turned down, but I knew somebody who could help, like who made an intro to a bank, which is not even based in Switzerland, and uh, but in the near neighbor country. And uh, yeah, so that's that made it easier, but yeah, it still took like two months to set it up or so. Right. So now, you know, we all probably have a good friend uh, who is this crypto guy or girl and they really talk about crypto all the time and blockchain and how it's going to change the world. But for other people who are not that deep into that topic, the things that we're about to talk uh, are, might sound quite difficult to understand. So to start, I would like to explain you the liquidity concept, how you would explain it to a five-year-old child. So can you summarize and explain what liquidity actually does? Yeah, so some people, they need money for some purpose because they want to buy a car or they want to buy a house. And what they usually do currently in the traditional system, they go to a bank and they would take out a loan and this loan would be secured by uh, the thing that they buy. Basically, it's a house or a car. So this is then a pawn or this is then collateral for the bank. So if they don't repay their loan, the bank can just take back or take the like uh, the thing that they founded and uh, sell it basically to cover their costs. And it's a similar concept. So what we are doing is like there are already many cryptocurrencies out there. One of the more popular ones is Ether. Many people want to invest in Ether because they think that the price would go up. So they already own Ether or they want to buy Ether. But at the same time, I mean, they need the money because they maybe want to go on holiday or spend it like somewhere else. And liquidity basically allows them to have the cake and eat it because they can now buy the Ether or just put the Ether they have in our system, lock it up there and take out a loan against it. And this loan would be paid out in a some like virtual dollar. So it's it's called a stable coin. It's a token which is stable in value because it just follows the US dollar. And this token you get as a loan. And the big benefit over other systems, uh, similar systems, is that you don't pay an interest on this loan. It's interest-free. That sounds almost too good to be true. So you can stay long on the Ether because you think the price will increase, but you still get the liquidity in to buy a house, to go on vacation, whatever. Yeah, it it uh, sounds a bit like uh, too good to be true. And it was also like interesting to convince people that this can actually work out. 
There are fees involved, so it's not completely fee-less because when you open a loan, you pay like a small upfront fee, which is normally 0.5% of the amount that you borrow, which is not too high. And uh, But that's it, basically. So as a borrower, you don't really have to care about any further cost. And there is not even, and that's the cool thing, there is no repayment obligation at all or schedule. The value of the ETH has to be at least 110% of your loan that you took out. Otherwise, you can get liquidated. What does that mean, getting liquidated? Um, it basically means that it's a bit different from other systems. In our, that's also the main innovation. So it means that, um, I mean... Other protocols would then basically take the Ether and sell it on the market, like by auctioning it off. And then whatever mm -hmm. they get is hopefully uh, sufficient to cover the debt, which wasn't repaid. So they basically sell off the collateral to cover the debt. We, on the other hand, we do it differently. We have um, something called a stability pool, which you can think of as an insurance pool. Mm -hmm. So every holder of LUSD, which is the name of the stablecoin that we give out as a loan, Every holder can put their tokens into this pool and become like an underwriter or guarantor of every borrower. Yeah. And then when the system needs to liquidate somebody, it can simply take out the right amount of LUSD tokens from this pool to pay off the debt in lieu of the borrower who is liquidated and then mm -hmm. take the Ether, the collateral from the borrower, and give it to these people who pr contributed to this stability pool. Wow. And why is that the better solution than the other one, just selling it or auctioning it on, on the market? Um, it's all about speed. Because the problem, and that's also something faced by traditional banks, mm -hmm. uh, we had th this famous issue with Credit Suisse and uh, Archegos, or Archegos, where they couldn't really sell the collateral from a, like, a big um, borrower like, um, fast enough, so they, they lost out big time on that. So it's all about speed because during the time you, you're trying to sell something and if it's like a big amount, it's hard to sell, especially if the markets right. are plummeting. And we turn things on it, on its head because we basically anticipate it liquidations by having this pool. So we don't need to sell. There is no like immediate pressure. We can just immediately take out uh, the amount from the pool. So yeah, that's much faster. And you don't need to find a buyer. That's super cool because you even had a huge stress test, right? One month after the launch, I think the Ether price plummeted by 40%. Mm -hmm. And then your system really got you know, tested because then many, many people that took out a loan sort of got liquidated because the collateral was not met anymore by the 110%. Exactly. So that was like one month after our launch, basically, when there was this huge crash on one day the ether price like plummeted by like 40 percent or so and it hit many borrowers like around 300 borrowers really hard they got liquidated and i mean it was like shocking to see all that happening at that time we were like very nervous but then it i mean of course it was a bad experience for the borrowers but it was also to some extent their like risk that they were absolutely okay with yeah. But for us, as the builders of a system, it was like really cool to see how well the system coped with it. Like it could liquidate like those 300 positions within no time, like within a few minutes. And um, yeah, and that was like this kind of stress test that made us sure that, yeah, this can work really also under difficult um, situations. And I guess that really is the, the quality of the code that you mentioned before in the beginning that is so crucial for such a financial product, right? Yeah, so, I mean, that's really crucial. So we, we spent like an enormous amount of time on testing. 
I think we like out of the one and a half years from starting to or from the start to launch, it was like maybe hot, like six months really coding and one year just testing and security wow. work. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, also necessary. I mm-hmm. fully understand that. And I think many projects that might skip that, the testing to the extent that you did it, then you just run into errors and then people get frustrated and lose the trust. Yeah, I mean, you have to be really careful. And in our case, it's even more extreme because we have a very radical approach in the sense that our system is completely immutable, which means it's just there working autonomously. Nobody can really update it or upgrade it or fix a bug if there is one. So we have to make sure that the system is just correct and and without like any um, safeguard later that we can have. So yeah, that was also part of the reason why we spent so many hours on testing. And, you know, people often, they are very enthusiastic about the possibilities that DeFi uh, offers them. At the same time, they sometimes might forget about the risks that they also agree to take on uh, in order to actually participate in, in these DeFi products. So what are some of the risks that the borrowers or lenders on liquidity might have to think about? So for the borrowers, it's there are two risks. Like The main risk is liquidation risk. Uh, which I already kind of mentioned. Mm -hmm. You have to maintain a a minimum collateral ratio of 110%. Uh, Under some circumstances, it can even be 150%. So we always recommend people to keep their collateral ratio high enough. Then there is also another risk, which is a bit more difficult to explain. We have like the way how the system um, provides stability, like makes makes the value of LUSD stable against US dollar is like done by something which is a redemption mechanism and this redemption mechanism can also hit the borrowers that are like low like on the lower end of the collateralization scale so that's just another reason to be well collateralized so that's like what you have to look out for you have to check the ether price and if you see oh it went down maybe at 20 percent, so then you should probably reduce your loan or top up collateral and on the other hand, do you also have any risks that the the lenders face? So we don't really have lenders because the system itself is acting like a national bank. It's minting right. its own currency. But we have those stability providers mm-hmm. that are providing um, like, like those funds that are needed for liquidating other people. They are more or less risk-free or risk-off. So they even get like an extra reward. I mean, they not only get like a net gain from the liquidations, where they have a small risk that when they get the Ether, because they lose some of their LUSD, but mm-hmm. they gain Ether, even though they gain it at a 10% discount, but it can still happen that over time, the like this value goes down because the Ether continues yeah. to fall in price. So they may have to sell the Ether if they want to lock in their profit. So that's one risk that they face. And from you as a... I know you don't do the lending yourself. You just basically built the platform around it to, you know, make that possible in a decentralized way. But basically, do you also face any risk or is it for you just a, a great upside? Um, so for us as a company, I mean, we have to make sure that we stick to all the legal and regulatory right. um, obligations. Which You're is, the right man for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, of course, we also have a treasury of 
liquidity tokens, which is a secondary token. You can think of it like as a digital share in a way because it, it gets the fee revenue from the system. Yeah. So we have a vested interest in making sure that the system continues working and generating revenue, even though it's like not a huge revenue because it's a 0.5% fee. But I mean, if the volumes are big, even like this fee can become large in the end. So we have an interest in like making sure that the platform is well integrated with other systems in the space and also like well accessible. And we also have to just explain it to people so that, yeah, you know how to use it. So it's basically, that's your business model, right? You get the 0.5% on the loans that are taken out and that's it. Yeah. So we get it indirectly. So that's also partly due to legal reasons that we cannot like directly charge a fee as a company, but um, we tokenize the fee revenue. So by issuing this secondary token, the LQTY or liquidity token, and just by owning some of those tokens, we also have like kind of just some economic benefit of the system, but it's not like a fee. But it's crazy if you think about that, then you build yourself really a huge upside with quite a small team, but a huge technological leverage that you built for yourself. That's true. So, I mean, it's really unbelievable how this went up. I mean, it was also thanks to the markets that, I mean, when we started, like the whole DeFi space was around the size or even smaller than just the size of our current system now. And the whole space was Crazy. smaller than where we are now. So, <laughs> uh, as one project. So, yeah, but it really took off like from 1 billion market size to like 90 billion or so. Uh, now it like we had another crash just like these days. Right. But yeah, I mean... I guess like the long-term outlook is still positive. But it's insane when you think about, you know, there are leverage, you can have other people work for you. You can use external capital and invest it. But what you build is like the whole nother level of leverage with the technology in the DeFi space. So that's really mind-blowing for me to see what kind of a big lever that you can build with a small team. Yeah, it is incredible. And, and like if you look at it and, and our growth at the beginning, I mean, we were kind of blown away ourselves because we didn't expect it to be so fast. Within the first 10 days, the total value locked, which is basically the value of the Ether that is collateralized for the loans, uh, went from zero to one billion US dollar. That's insane. <laughs> what did that do to you as a founder? I mean, did, did you get super nervous because you thought, well, now this can really not break. It, it has to work and it increased the pressure on you or were you really happy about it? And it was like, hey, that's amazing. That's just so cool. <laughs> I think both. So, I mean, yeah, yeah the, the most optimistic scenario was maybe a billion after a year. But even that was like kind <laughs> of, I mean, that was already seeing like some other projects. I mean, but then it yeah. like it only took 10 days. But yeah, I mean, the, the speed of the growth was also kind of made us nervous. Yeah. And then it was good to go through this first stress test because afterwards it was a more relieved a relaxed feeling that you can so the system yeah. works proven stress tested we're yeah. all good mm -hmm. and how do you actually acquire the users to actually use the protocol because you know you don't have any front end yourself so you have to send them somewhere else but you still have had to make some noise that people actually know about the protocol and, and your offering basically yeah so i mean that's uh kind of an, an approach that we innovate like that we pioneered almost because we we made it so that those front ends they they get like a benefit when they acquire end users 
because they get like a share of the profits and they can even determine this share like there's a kickback mechanism where they can uh, like set the lever what how much they want to keep and give to the user and we thought that this would lead to an interesting competition and also to front ends kind of trying to get as many users as possible it worked out a bit differently than we expected but it worked out well i mean in the end because we we have like a few dozens of front ends we didn't need to put that much effort in marketing and promotion i mean it was we were really low key so not like compared to other projects uh, but i think we were very well like we, we we kind of like the big whales in the space and big investors they somehow already knew about liquidity maybe also thanks to our big investors like polychain and and some others that mm-hmm. we had and pantera so i mean that made it easier to get those connections and so we didn't really need to like have like advertisement campaigns or stuff like that so it was so the important people they knew about your project yeah would you say that it's about building trust with having the right investors that's sort of a signaling that you do there but then at the same time it's also about getting the incentives right as you did with the competition sort of yeah that's a good point there was another incentive which was even more important maybe and that was like this early adopter uh incentive where we basically gave back i mean we are still giving back because it's a continuous program some of the LQTY tokens, which represent the fee revenue and the economic value behind LiquidTV, we are basically giving out those tokens for free to the stability depositors. Mm-hmm. And given that at the beginning, it all started with zero supply, like with like the supply of this LQTY token started very scarce, it also meant that the price went up like crazy. And this created this flywheel or feedback loop so that it attracted even more people to open up loans and to become a, like a user and then yeah just helped and you mentioned this volatility i mean we all see that when we look at the charts of different cryptos and tokens does that bother you in any way you know is, is that something that causes sleepless nights for you or is it just something where you say oh no that's normal that's just part of the game because there are huge fluctuations in the markets yeah as we have just seen now like recently yeah i mean for us as a company or a project, it's not as maybe um, important, but I mean, for our users, so thinking of our users, it's like not the best situation imaginable. So that's why we are also trying to partner up or we are already like um, working with, with other uh, projects like DeFi Saver, for example, that have built automation tools for some systems and hopefully they will also do it for liquidity where they manage the position for the borrower so the borrower can then sleep well at night because he knows or she knows that uh, the system would automatically repay or adjust the loan if needed nice now i also want to talk about the timing and the hype that you mentioned before so you know back then in april when you actually launched um crypto was on its super hyped time everybody was talking about it you read a lot about it in the mainstream media but then something else happened right so now we actually have a new hype coming this year in 2022 about nfts about web3 so the whole DeFi space seems to be a bit yeah left behind it's like okay this wave is already over do you think that this will you know imply any challenges for you in the near future um I mean, it has yet to be seen how, like, 
sustainable like the uh, the NFT craze is, um, I don't think that it makes DeFi uh, redundant. I think there is, there are also good ways of combining the two, um, using like NFTs for example as collateral in DeFi or whatnot. Um, so I think there is like, space or room for both uh, innovations and. I mean, I'm pro- probably even more fascinated or more interested to see what comes next. I mean, even NFTs is some not that new any longer. I mean, they just got more popular yeah. recently, but they they basically date back to, to to like when we had the crypto kitties already five years ago. So yeah, it's like it goes up and down, and I think DeFi has not reached its final uh, degree of innovation yet. So and yeah, we are also working on new things. Um, which should try to push the boundaries. Um, but we'll see how it all plays out. So you basically say there's much more innovation coming from DeFi and DeFi is here to stay. Yeah, definitely. So DeFi currently is just scratching the surface in a way because it's currently all about being collateralized. And I think there are also ways of combining DeFi with more traditional banking or where you can then also use real-world assets or give out loans that are not collateralized by anything, like just by your personal credibility. Um, so I think there are many places where like the space could still grow into. I'm getting really excited about you just talking about these other opportunities that lie out there. Another thing I also want to briefly talk about is you mentioned investors. You had You have well-known investors on board from the space. Was that difficult for you to get them excited and to, to join and invest in liquidity, or was that an easy process for you? Um, it was a, a roller coaster ride. Um, we had ups and downs. So we got like when we just announced liquidity, we got like tons of inbound requests from investors, uh, which was really cool. We had a lot of like very interesting conversations with them, but then. It turned out that it was quite difficult to find a lead investor, like one investor that was ready to lead the negotiation and make a commitment. So even though we had many investors that said, like, when you have a lead investor, we will just join and follow. But that, like, was just like a a fallback. Like, I mean, first had to find a lead investor and that wasn't as easy. But it was maybe also due to COVID and the whole crypto space was not in the best shape when we started looking for investors. And then during the summer uh, 2020, the markets, they kind of started to grow again. And then also the valuations went up and uh, it became easier. And how did they manage to find a lead investor? Um, So it was basically Polychain that I knew that I wanted to have. Um, I mean, if I could choose and yeah, we ended up with with Polychain, so that was uh, quite cool. Um, I mean, we had interesting negotiations, tough negotiations, but I guess that's like sure. normal, a uh, part of the process. Um, maybe it would have helped if we had the chance to like personally meet, but that was not possible back then. But it also worked out all online. And why do you actually want to get investors on board in the first place and not say, hey, we continue to bootstrap and then also eventually live from the revenues coming in i mean we still needed more funds than we had just from this pre-seed round and just from setting up the company itself uh so yeah it would have been difficult to pull it off just from our own savings 
I guess also because like the whole security work, like the audits and economic modeling, because we also hired like economic external modeling firms. Yeah. They, I mean, cost like several hundreds of uh, US dollars. So funding that like from your own savings would have been difficult. A bit tricky, mm. yeah. Then something uh, we also often hear or read in this space from, I would say, more critical voices, they say VCs own the blockchain. So that was just a general statement that people often say or read about. Isn't that sort of a contradiction to the way that the whole decentralization is set up, that you say, hey, of course, everything is decentralized. It's the new hype, the new the, the future, basically. But then the companies behind the blockchain are basically owned by the VC firms. Um, so maybe that's true for some projects. And um, I think we have to differentiate here because some or most projects have some kind of governance involved. So it's not just the company that's governed, but also right. the project itself through the tokens, like people can vote on, on different things. And then I do think it can be an issue if there are just too many, like if if the power is concentrated in the hands of a few major investors. In our case, it's very different because we don't have a governance at all. It's all immutable. It's all set in, or set in stone, fixed from the beginning. So even though financially, of course, investors are benefiting, they cannot really, they don't have a say in how the protocol should work. So nobody can be uh, like affected by that. I mean, we don't have a say either as a company or as, as people now because it's out there and working autonomously. Right. But don't you think that then once the, the company, you know, the legal company that actually is also profit oriented, um, sort of would lose the investors or would close down, that also the project would lose its attractiveness? That's a difficult question. So what, like, do we even need this company going forward? I mean, if, if sure. we were just to like, live like if we didn't have any other projects in mind that we want to launch later maybe at some point we wouldn't even need like a competent and ongoing support because once we have a community that's kind of strong enough you may not need like ongoing efforts but for now i think it still helps to um pursue some integrations because we, we just got listed like the lqt just got listed on some major crypto exchanges but that took like a lot of work from us and due diligence and everything so there is still a need for a company behind or just people behind the system even though the system itself is like a robot yeah <laughs> so now if you look at where you currently stand you have a total value locked of more than 1.5 billion i think it was even more than 1.6 billion uh, us dollars i mean it's crazy business is booming you already teased a few new products or ideas or spaces that are interesting for you so we'll wonder what's next for you because now you did the infrastructure part you know you did the apps part what's next for you robert so i would say like the first or the next steps are still like DeFi centric so i mentioned like some ideas that go beyond DeFi, like which i think is very interesting but that's like kind of a long-term vision but mm -hmm. now for the next steps we want to basically push forward some ideas that we have around like treasury, autonomous treasury systems. And uh, yeah, I cannot really uh, reveal too much now, but uh, it will be interesting to uh, for us also to see how like a new uh, kind of system can manage funds autonomously. Really cool. So before we wrap up today's episode, we have two more sections for you. The first one is do you have any personal resources or gadgets that you can recommend to our listeners? To 
people who just want to get started or get involved with crypto with not like that much like uh, prior knowledge, I can uh, recommend uh, Binance Academy. Binance is, I think, the biggest crypto exchange and the Academy is their resource portal for like articles. And the, the cool thing is that they even have like three levels, beginner, intermediate and expert, I guess. So people can then start like or learn according to their needs and, and levels. Perfect. I think that's a really great recommendation. Now, the very last part are some rapid fire questions. I either give you a short question or different options to choose from, and you have to make a statement in one sentence. Are you ready? Yes. So the first one, is crypto overhyped? Yes. You think so? That's interesting. Why do you think so? In a certain way, I think it's overhyped because people don't see like the real value behind it. They see like a speculative value, which is, I think, overhyped. Then that would lead to the follow-up question, what is the real value behind it? I think the real value eventually is an integration of real-world assets. Like what, for example? What would you go for there? Like everything, like ranging from art and uh, company shares and everything that can somehow be represented by tokens on the blockchain. Well, but you would then say basically... For crypto to have a real value, you need a real-world connection to the assets that we have here in the real physical world. Eventually, yes, because it should like kind of get out from being a circular system, which is currently still the case to some extent. Wow, that's I didn't expect that from you, but that's super interesting. Law or engineering, if you had to make a choice? Now engineering. Cryptocurrency of choice? Ooh, terror. <laughs> okay. And how many hours of sleep did you get last night? Um, seven. Nice. And the last one for you, Zurich or Souk? Zurich. That's also easy for you, despite your hometown being Souk. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I, I, um, I've been living here in Zurich now for 12 years, so. You built the, the, the beginning of the crypto valley. That's Zurich now. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Robert, thank you so much for stopping by. It was super interesting to learn from you and to hear your story. And we wish you all the best and lots of success with whatever you'll be tackling next. Thank you. That was really interesting. Thanks for having me. It was a great uh, interview and conversation. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.